and welcome to episode 27 of the Auto Movie Podcast, where myself, Chris Ratcliffe, and Martin Spain talk about cars and films and TV and all of that good stuff at length. This episode, our theme is Le Mans, but first we have to talk about Becky the Florist. Marty? <laughs> the film is not actually called Becky the Florist, or perhaps it might be better. It might be better if it were. So I think we trailed this on the previous episode of the podcast. Uh, Ferrari have been busy in a rather deserted Monaco during the lockdown uh, with director Claude Lelouch, he of Cité en Rendezvous, directing a follow-up some many years after the original. Now, I'm using the word follow-up generously. They have directed some shots of a Ferrari SF90 with Ferrari Formula One superstar Charles Leclerc at the wheel racing around a deserted Monaco. And at the start and randomly in the middle and at the end, there is a florist whose name is Becky. <laughs> That's about all I got from that, if I'm honest. I will admit I have watched this once. Once was all it took. I... Now, let me, before we jump on this, and Chris did say to me before the show that he doesn't want to spend the whole time just piling onto Ferrari and how terrible this is, because, listeners, it's terrible. <laughs> However, I do want to highlight something I did enjoy about seeing the Monaco circuit far more open, without all the crash barriers, without the safety crews and mm. the huge grandstands and so on, you get a feel of what the Monaco circuit used to be like when they raced cigar-shaped danger boxes around there with people like <laughs> Jim Clark and Graham Hill and all those kind of you know superstars. I really, really enjoyed seeing Monaco the city as opposed to Monaco the tunnel. You know, okay, one bit is an actual tunnel, but the rest of it is just barriers and catch fencing. And the only way you get any sense of the place is from the, the aerial shots and the crane cams. I really enjoyed seeing the footage that shot from the bumper of the car where you see sort of a more open side of the corner. That's just me liking Monaco as, as a place mm. to kind of go, oh, isn't it nice? Isn't it full of rich people? Isn't it pretty? <laughs> um, or, as, or as Chris Harris once called it, a bit of a shithole. Let's face it, it is. The train station's marvellous. It's a proper Bond villain train station. It's in the mountain. Honestly, go to Monaco from, I don't know, Nice or Antibes or somewhere, get the train down the, you know, down the, the coast. It's fantastic. That is the way to go. Uh, definitely don't drive in. Uh, but that is probably the only good thing I can take from this. The There is no plot despite it having the simplest of plots to base itself on, Sete on Rendezvous is a really simple film. And somehow, for this version, they've just ballsed it up. They have. And I actually reached out to various people that I've spoken to on Twitter and that I know and that we collectively know. And the consensus that came back was that it's awful. I thought it was a bit like Dude, Where's My Car? I should explain that. When I saw <laughs> Dude, Where's My Car? at the cinema... I thought it was hugely unfunny to the point that I then bought it on DVD because I thought I must be wrong and realised, no, it is actually rubbish. And it's the same with this. I watched it and went, hang on, I've I've missed something here. This must be me. And I reached out, like I say, to, uh, to a few people I know and they said, it's just bad. The music sounds like a pound shop ripoff of John Williams doing Star Wars. It could kind of break into those kind of disco-y Empire, Empire March uh, tunes at times. 
the stabilization is really bad some of the settings on the inboard cameras as well if you notice on some youtube channels they do that slightly floaty thing where the stabilization's overcorrecting. it's the biggest missed opportunity in marketing i think i've ever seen i think that's fair I, I, one thing i've noticed is that there's across the social channels there's been no defense of it the only person i've seen saying something vaguely positive was the drive who said it's not as good as the original but it's still fun i have to question which version they saw because the version i saw was not fun <laughs> but yeah it's like you say it's a it's a missed opportunity adam cooper mm. formula one journalist said you know wasted opportunity i think everybody has said this was a great idea and you have charles leclerc a very photogenic up-and-coming mm. formula one superstar racing for ferrari probably the most exciting Ferrari driver for a generation. And this is what you do with him? Yeah. And Sam Moore, the photographer and podcaster, said, Monaco is one of the most iconic, most photographed circuits probably in the world. And we've seen it over the years. We've seen it on all sorts of different racing cars. And we have this high-quality, stabilised footage of cars going bonkers quick. And then you put it on the front of a road car, albeit a very, 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 very quick road car. But it's still the the actual going round the circuit, apart from the historical nerdy thing where you kind of go, oh, so that's what the harbour looks like. Yes. You, it's, it's nothing that we haven't really seen before. But faster, <laughs> with less understeer. I think the thing that really got me was the lack of story, that there's all the things that kind of go into it. But then did Prince Albert say that it can go ahead as long as I'm in it. Was that his sort of condition? You know, you pull up outside the uh, the casino, the, you know, the famous Monte Carlo casino. There's all these people clapping very nicely and he's there and they're all very sort of, you know, doffing cap and it's like... Are we uh, in North Korea all of a sudden? It had that <laughs> feeling for me of just... Well, yeah, exactly. They were all lined up clapping like someone had told them, clap or we'll shoot you. <laughs> Welcome to the People's Democratic Republic of Monaco. It was very awkward. It was, that's the thing. Yeah. We've talked about it as a film, but I think we need a bit of backup on this. So we have brought our first guest on the podcast on this, our sort of regular show. Hello, Matt Lange. Hiya. How are you doing, guys? We should explain. Matt is a Ferrari aficionado, Ferrari owner, and general nerd of the highest order when it comes to the prancing horse, uh, and a very good friend of ours. So we thought we'd invite him on to get a Ferrari fan's take on the film and provide a bit more of the technical detail on why Ferrari might have made this. Uh, firstly, I think I'm going to say I completely agree with you guys. It's a pile of dreck. <laughs> it's terrible. There's nothing really to gain from it. I think just on the point of the movie, and if you look on, I don't know if you guys had a reach around the Ferrari forums talking about it, which actually it was brought, yeah, <laughs> yeah, talking about it surprisingly little. The, the thing everyone is complaining about is the lack of sound from the car. Mm. It's, and the odd thing about this, this is a car that everyone is worried about from the Ferrari world is it's a hybrid. Is it not going to sound good? And Ferrari have just given us a video that it does not sound very good <laughs> at all. In um, it's it's a it's a it just I don't really get it. I mean, 
yes, Ferrari don't. I know some people will say Ferrari don't need to really advertise their cars, but this is a new, slightly new market for them. It's a more expensive car than any, it's more expensive regular production car than they've ever done before. I mean, you think the list price is £100,000 more than a uh, 812 Superfast. Oh, it's wow. not cheap. Is that, yeah, it's actually, uh, technically, it's the new flagship. I think they're kind of reorganizing the range a bit, but it's the, it's the fastest and it's the it's supposed to be their premium car and it looks, it looks very ordinary. In it this looks... Film. <laughs> it <laughs> reminded mean, me of nothing more than a new Corvette, which is a big plus for Corvette. Mm. and not a great sign for Ferrari, if I'm honest. Looking at the front of it, it sounds, I think, like a Hoover. I don't know whether or not that's what it sounds like or that's just really appalling sound recording. The whole thing feels, it feels rushed. It feels like they had, I don't know, a morning in Monaco and they had to smash through and grab any footage that they thought they could get on a camera phone and some GoPros. And Mm. then they were told, okay, you've got five days to edit. And... Because it feels to me nothing like a movie and more like, well, here is all the clips we shot in chronological order (laughs) and now what? I think actually the point on the sound recording is a a very good one because if you listen to it at speed, and admittedly it's kind of Monaco speed, you can hear the mic getting saturated with wind noise. And I think that you're right, Matt, it's the sound of a Ferrari is absolute you know it's one of the defining characteristics um where does this sit compared to the roma uh well the roma is the but it's not quite the base model but it's an introductory model whereas this is very sitting right at the top of the range i mean it's it's a weird it's a car i'll be honest i don't fully quite get i mean there's i as you guys know, I'm much more into older Ferraris than newer ones. <laughs> uh, well, no, uh, but the but yeah, it's it's a stra- it's it's a strange thing. I I kind of wonder from a car point of view, and there's people that we know like Chris Harris and people who know who know better than me to describe it is whether at some point someone said this was going to be the 488 replacement, and someone a marketing guy said. Why don't we whack a hybrid in there, whack it up to a thousand horsepower, and charge a hundred thousand pounds more for it? Because <laughs> it does have a little bit of a look of that as a car. And the other thing about it is, it was shown a year ago. Uh, first, the pictures, and I know Ferrari's and I rather like Aston Martin. There's shareholders to please, and we haven't read. There's been very much. I think in, in terms of media about it, it's been crickets really since. It's been there's been no real thing, and I suspect that COVID has probably played a part because I guess about now you'd expect all the journalists to be testing it and you know giving hopefully glowing reviews of it. <laughs> and just again reading on the forums, I mean people uh, people who have ordered the car they're not expecting deliveries before the end of this year, so there's quite a big hype train that they've needed to build on this car. Uh, in terms to keep the to keep the interest going, I think there's a spider version coming as well. Um, of course, there is in a couple in in a couple of months as well. <laughs> there'll probably be even more money, but it's um, yeah. I think I just wonder if the they because they hadn't done a big launch, you know, with all the journalists testing it, and they had a bit of PR budget, and someone else said, "Oh, why don't we do this? We can get <laughs> we can market our new F1 star, as you said, Marty, of it, and then get him." And that's kind of where, and that's where it sort of come out. I have to say, unlike Marty, I've watched it about four or five times, um, partly because I knew I was coming on this, so I wanted to. <laughs> you see, you did more prep than I did. <laughs> yeah, my but God, the, actual research. 
<laughs> yeah. But the, the weird thing is, I actually, the first time I watched it, because I knew it was coming out and I was watching a movie at home with my wife and she didn't really want me to suddenly stick a YouTube video on in the middle of it. <laughs> so I actually watched it without the sound on. And it's almost kind of, weirdly, it's almost better without the sound in some respects. <laughs> well, then it feels like something that would be playing in the Ferrari dealership while you're specifying your SF90 yeah. on a big mm. flat screen behind the, mm. you know, the, the mm. main desk. It's muted and you just see nice-ish shots of the car. The problem is this feels so much like it was done on a budget, which is odd because if this is their flagship car, you'd expect them to put some effort behind it. And I can't help but feel somewhat uncharitably that getting Claude Lelouch to do this wasn't a good idea because let's face it what has he worked on since that lets you say he is the guy to direct your basically automotive porn movie why and there's no relation to Cetéon Rendezvous because he's just going around in a circle Mm. so just on that I I was thinking the same thing about Claude Lelouch's back catalogue and actually if you look on imdb he has done a lot of french cinema he's not some one hit wonder who's just sort of cashing in on a thing that he did 30 years ago and hasn't really done much since i wonder if they got the right crew i wonder if crew movement was limited so would they have got a better crew if we weren't in a lockdown situation um i think claude lelouch has certainly sold his name and the setting rendezvous name for 30 pieces of silver on this. I don't think it's done him any favours, but I'm perhaps uncharitably going to suggest he got a fair pay day out of it. But I do think that there seems to be a problem, and again, without naming any names, the people that I've spoken to about this say that Ferrari is not an easy client to work with. You surprise me. (laughs) Why um, does that not... Yeah, I can imagine that they are. Yes, yes. The uh, Fernando Alonso Design Agency gave up on them quite some time ago. I I wonder if it is lost in either a bad vision, a bad sort of production, a bad concept going in, or whether it was cliented to death at the far side and it just got too cut no more of the car less of that and there's an editor somewhere going this makes no sense okay well if that's what you want just you know uh." it's Um, quite possible we've all worked on projects hmm. that have started with the best intentions and ended up looking like someone took a picture of the thing you wanted and then ran it through a paper shredder and stuck it together (laughs) again with sticking tape yeah i mean i mean mean, matt what have ferrari done before because i was trying to think of other great Ferrari promos. And I think they've always relied on a lot of kind of word of mouth, really, haven't they? Well, they always do. Every car seems to get what they call the official video. But particularly if you look over the last 10 years, most of them are kind of the same. If you go back to the California, uh, not the T, but right back, so going back to 2009, they actually had Michael Mann of um, Last of the Mohicans and um, uh, Miami Vice and fame direct that one. And it's actually a very, it's a very nice, pretty video film, and it runs. I think it's about three or four minutes. It has very little plot, but it has two <laughs> two Californias driving very nicely along. I guess the PCH or somewhere up there. It's beautifully shot and nicely cut. If you look at most of the ones since, they've had some director said, "Look at that. We'll change the location a bit, and we'll put the same car in." But then 
most of them they've got nice like pappy v12 noises or wailing <laughs> v8s and they don't actually need a lot more they've done if you go right back and i have to say you'll only ever find a copy on youtube in 480p which shows how old it is is that the the 599 promo video i think is their best one i think they actually had a point to it they were trying to say our luxury gt is now faster than an f40 and they basically take some place in california or nevada and well, it's not a real race, but it, they, <laughs> basically the two cars are having a race down this, you know, very beautiful road, whatever, lots of, you know, Italian, where there's guy in his sort of semi-race gear and the other guy in his <laughs> Armani suit in the 599, and obviously it wins just. Um, but it, that is actually quite an enjoyable, it's about three minutes long, and it's quite an enjoyable, exciting exciting film. It's interesting that they've got the they brought Michael Mann in because I think I'm right in saying that Michael Mann directed the fake movie called Lucky Star for Mercedes-Benz with um, Benicio Del Toro. I remember seeing it in the cinema in front of a movie where it's basically like a trailer for a film and he's in a Mercedes, I want to say an SL of some kind. And he sat at a set of traffic lights and there's like narration over the top saying this man is, you know, everything he does, every tip is right. He's the dice always fall in his favor and all the lights go green just for him and all the way down there. And it plays like the coolest movie trailer and everyone's thinking, I really want to see that. And it turns out it's a commercial for Mercedes Benz, but it's a really effective commercial. And I can see why getting a Hollywood director with a sense of style and a sense of story gets you a good promo. And I fail to see why bringing on what I assume is an art house French director is going to get you anything other than an art house French movie, which you could probably charitably mm. say that this is that. But it it feels like a massive misstep. It feels like this fell out of someone's backside. And I can I think Matt said something along the lines of this is the worst car promotion video since Aston Martin's Keen Harpist video <laughs> from <laughs> from when was that? That was like 2011. I I it's meant when the rapide came out. Whatever yes, year that was. I meant to go back and watch that just to remind myself of the horror because a whole group of us that were on Twitter at the time spent days, weeks, years even, <laughs> continually referring to that and taking the mickey. And I feel like we gave Aston a bit of a kicking. And I mm. think Le Grand Rendezvous is going to be given a similar kicking for years to come because it's mm. just bollocks. Wh who was it who did the Impossible Dream? Then I realised it was Honda. There was mm. the, Phil, the advert that either Ferrari or Shell did where it was famous historical... I think F1 cars in famous places around the world. So there was a like yes, a 250F was... going around the Coliseum and... That's a Maserati. This why we have you on. <laughs> yeah. I think that was a Shell video. I'm pretty sure I brought that up in another podcast, uh, like in a, a previous episode, because it's a fantastic advert. And it... it Okay, it's for Formula One cars rather than the road cars. Imagine mm. for, if Ferrari could do that for the road cars, and that would have been way better. Imagine if they went back through all of their... Um, I mean, is the SF90 is a V8, right, with the hybrid bolted mm -hmm. to it? So they yeah. could go through all their V8 cars, one by one, you know, cut from one to the next to the next. You could have done all of those around Monaco. Okay, logistics during lockdown, very difficult. 
And that would have been a better ad and an end on the SF90. And hey, here comes the future. It might sound a little bit like your washing machine going backwards, but it's still quite good. Please buy one. <laughs> I've got it. No, this is what this is what it should happen, right? Very 70s French opening titles, fade up from black, a, a roaring proper Ferrari V8, car hurtling through the streets of Monaco. And there's no introduction. It's just... You know, bah, 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 and all the shops rushing past only on the bumper. And then right at the end of the lap, the car pulls up, cut to an outside shot. There's Lewis Hamilton jumping out of a uh, S65 with a massive gimbal mounted on the front bumper. He gets the uh, flowers from the forest, florist, jumps back in, drives off with this dubbed V8 Ferrari over the top as this massive Mercedes with a camera on the front. And it's like, filmed by Claude Lelouch. I don't yeah. think Ferrari would really take that one. I think. No, but <laughs> I love from, the idea. I think for the, Mercedes, it would have been actually yes. no, no. If, if it's Mercedes, dub the um, SLS V8 over the top. Oh, that's a filthy V8. I love those. <laughs> and, uh, I'm annoyed that they are not like pennies now. They've gone up in price because <laughs> they're filthy. Anyway, we've gone off topic a bit. Matt, do you think this is going to have any effect on SF90 sales? Now people have seen it and heard it again. Are people going to go, you know what, this is not the Ferrari I put my deposit down for? Is it going to make any difference? Will it make uh, maybe, a li- maybe a little, one or two sales? I mean, you hear noises that it's apparently not selling as well as it has, but then I've heard other people say it's selling really, it's selling quite well. So it's, the proof will be in the pudding, I guess, in a few years' time. It's a, it's still a Ferrari. It's still a thousand horsepower supercar. It's do people buy it because of a four minute video that's a bit cack? No, <laughs> online. <laughs> yeah, that's very that's a fair point. I yeah, this may well be very quickly forgotten when as the world goes back except to normal by, a little. Except, <laughs> except by, by us. us. Yeah, yeah. I think the one thing I would say about the film, I actually think it's a bit of a victim of its own hype because mm. Ferrari have been hyping this for a month. You talked about it. Before. If they'd have just dropped it on the day and possibly if they'd have cut out Becky the florist, which I agree. <laughs> uh, the, and then just said, here's the film. Everyone had gone, mm, it's not a great film, but it's quite cool. And then moved on. If it had been, for example, you set up the florist, you set up Charles Leclerc blasting it through. You kind of up the production quality a bit. He stops, gets the flowers, goes off in a plume of smoke screeches to halt outside to back and there's his girlfriend actually like sat at the table or or even better locked out um i was just thinking that you remember there's the story and and um, um, some of you may know that charles leclerc was busy playing online sim games when his girlfriend couldn't get into her flat and so she had to sign up to his twitch channel and send him a message in order to say can you let me into the flat <laughs> they've really missed an opportunity here because if you put together a storyline that is him racing off in his new sf90 to go and get a set of flowers to say sorry to his girlfriend for locking her out of the flat <laughs> because he's a monogasque he lives in monaco how perfect is that how could they miss that opportunity to tell an actually amusing relevant story and that still could have been done with claude lelouch you could have still had the iphone seller tape to the front of your ferrari <laughs> and it would have still it would have worked far better and then you know everyone would have been all over it because there's something very charming about someone who is so busy practicing his craft on the computer game that he forgets he's locked his girlfriend out of the flat <laughs> 
while being frustratingly handsome and uh, a Formula One driver and all of those things. Well, I think he's the only person that comes out of this okay because he looks bemused by the whole thing and he's kind of like, I'm driving this thing and then I get out and I bump my elbow against Prince Albert of Monaco and then what? Can I go home now? Is there also a thing, and this is probably a good question for you, Matt, the way that he was driving seemed very controlled. Like, they they didn't want to give the impression that the car was skittish or that it was a manly car that you had to kind of wrestle. Whereas if they'd let him off the lead a little bit and said, go on, get it on the lock stops going through Casino Square, you know, Lowe's hairpin, absolutely 90 degrees to the racing line the whole time, please. Would that actually have been very Ferrari, or are they a bit more sort of like, oh no, these sorts of no things? No one drives their cars like that. Actually, no. That if you look at some of the promo, if you look at the, I think it's the eight one two super fast film. That's basically because that car just wants to go sideways <laughs> if, as soon as you turn the traction control off, anyway. But that is basically sideways in in half of the film. So I don't think. And funny enough, if you, I don't know if you guys have watched any of the camera phone YouTubes that have uploaded, because obviously most of Monaco was filming it on their camera <laughs> phone. There is a video of him coming out of Anthony Nogue, and he is fully lit up. And there's two very big black lines that he's leaving out that corner. And how how is it that you know amateur camera phone footage is more exciting than the real thing? That tells you something about probably. I think Chris, you're right. This probably is the client direction for this is we want this kind of thing. And I suppose it's hard with a thousand horsepower rear wheel drive Ferrari not to it's get it sideways. Drive, which might be something to do with mm. it. Yeah. Too. Also, isn't there a thing with in Monaco that they, they have a modified car show every year? And basically, if you rev the engine at the wrong moment, the police come and take your car away. Oh, we're not going to get Dominic Toretto there, are they? That's a shame. <laughs> I, I have to say that, much, I mean, I've been to the Monaco Grand Prix a couple of times. I've been lucky to do that. And the Saturday evening after qualifying, because everyone thinks the circuit's closed a weekend, and it's closed to the racing and they open it up in the evening. And basically from the pit lane all the way up to Casino Square, you will have every Ferrari, Lamborghini, God knows whatever else within, <laughs> you know, that's come from about a thousand miles. is sitting there just revving their engines, trying to get in show. I've got the, I've got the loudest exhaust and I've got the, the stupidest paint job. <laughs> but, you know, we've banged on that about this for long enough. It's worth a watch once. Yep. And so that you can judge whether or not you feel we're right and that it is a pretty missed opportunity. Uh, I quite want to link to that Aston Martin Keen Harpist video if it still exists online. I don't think it does. I did look for it. I think I think it might have been expunged from history. <laughs> I cannot say that I blame them. Um, but yes, I think I was actually doing some work for Aston Martin around the time and there were some very ashamed people um, in, in other departments who had seen it and thought, oh God, what have we done now? <laughs> so they, in Ferrari, it could very well be the same so let's let's leave it there and thank you very much for coming on matt we'll have to get you back for more ferrari knowledge uh, i really do want to do uh, an episode on the ferrari film racing to immortality mm-hmm. which is a doc what is it 1950 to 1960 
Yes, it's yeah. It it I I will. Well, I've have you seen it? Because uh, it it's interesting. I have. I love it. I really love it. It's also quite upsetting, but I really really like it. Yeah. I uh, well, I'll, I'll, we'll save it for the uh, when you actually cover it. I I have an interest. I love it, but I have an interesting opinion on it. Oh, that's good. Well, we'll definitely do that. We'll trailer that one in that case in in a future episode of the pod. We'll get Matt back with his deep Ferrari knowledge to talk about <laughs> a rather interesting Ferrari documentary. Thanks very much for coming on, Matt. My pleasure. Before we carry on, actually, we should point out that Sky Documentaries, which is one of Sky's endless rebrands of its channels, actually have a number of um, sporting documentaries up there at the moment. So if you fancy watching the Ferrari Race to Immortality or a documentary about Marco Pantani or Scientology (laughs) or other things, I can't remember what the other one was now I told you about the other day, if you like documentaries, if you like sporting documentaries, all sorts of things, and you have Sky, go out and check Sky documentaries. And also, while you're checking things out, last week I had a chat with Jay Ward, the head of franchise at Pixar, about all things cars, Formula One, the motor show that he runs at Pixar, and all that fun stuff. So if you like Pixar, if you like animated films, or just two people talking endlessly about Formula One, go and check the intermission episode with Jay Ward, but now from Ferrari to Le Mans. Because this week should have been Le Mans. It was the virtual Le Mans, which was actually surprisingly surprisingly good. I watched the virtual Le Mans and I got quite sucked into it uh, with those, there was a really good three-way battle for the lead for a while um, between Team Redline with Max Verstappen and Lando Norris and the Bicolis team who have the most unreliable LMP car in the real world, but things don't seem to go wrong with their LMP car in the virtual world and they were doing a really great job and I forget who the third one was. I think it had Stoffel Van Dorn in it doing quite well again because he didn't have a McLaren Honda. I enjoyed it. I got quite sucked into it. I did get a bit cross when slight glitches and bugs meant that the Team Redline car with Max and Lando got dropped out for what seemed like no apparent reason. Um, something was that the one that ended up on its roof? I can't remember. Something went wrong and it was I think it was a glitch in the game or something um, and they ended up out of the game and then they got added back in when there was another red flag. Something similar happened to Fernando Alonso and they added him back in like 20 laps down or something just because they could. It was a qualified success, I'd say. Um, some of it was very engaging. Some of it was less engaging. I think the the atmosphere is fine during the day but lacking at night. Um, but I think that's just a a fact of online gaming graphics. I think also having, was it, um, I was going to say Nigel Havers, that would have been a very different commentary. Martin Haven is who you're thinking Martin of, Martin Haven, right? yes, not the guy from the Gold Blend advert. <laughs> um, and Alan McNish doing the commentary, which I think really lifts it when you have a good commentary team. Yeah, it was a pro commentary team. The whole thing was extremely professional and that made the big difference. They'd thrown their weight behind it. The um, the ACO and the FIA had all got involved to make this a proper thing. Now, we're going to get the real Le Mans in September, we hope, still. Mm. Um, but for now, we're going to talk about two films about Le Mans. I'm going to talk about Truth in 24. But first, Chris is going to talk about another documentary called Journey to Le Mans. Yes. So this was the story of the 2014 series, following the Jota endurance team in LMP2. It follows 
a very linear structure. So it basically follows the team through the year. The team that year was Simon Dolan, who owns Jota, um, Harry Tinknell. Tinknell. Tinknell, um, who was making his endurance racing debut, having kind of gone up through the ranks through single-seaters. Felipe Albuquerque did an early season race. Then for Le Mans, it was those two and Marc Genet was supposed to be their third driver for reasons that I shall come on to. It follows the team through the WEC and uh, ELMS season. It features things like Simon Dolan had a huge crash at Silverstone, which I think I think gave him a concussion from memory. Um, and it talks about what the team goes through to get then to the next race, what they did at Spa, what the build-up was to Le Mans. Literally, it's the journey to Le Mans. It's narrated in part by Patrick Stewart, which if you have any project which is narrated by Patrick Stewart, immediately has a gravitas to it. It's a strong choice for narrator. I have it beat, but it's a strong choice. You do have it beat. The opening line of Truth in 24 is better. We shall get onto that later. It's quite a general documentary. It talks about a bit of everything, but nothing too in-depth. So this is a proper film that anybody could come to and watch. And with no knowledge of endurance racing, it explains the basics. It talks about what the team does. It talks about how the drivers prepare. It talks about how Simon Dolan is a gentleman driver to an extent, doesn't rest on it too heavily. Um, And actually, I noticed we talked in, I think, the last episode about the gentleman driver. The director and producer of this, Charlotte Fantelli, was actually a co-producer on The Gentleman Driver. So she kind of has that experience that she then took forward into, into that film. As the season progresses, it does talk about each racing in quite a lot of detail. They spend quite a lot of time on things like Imola, for example. It tells you about the circuit. It tells you about how the race went. It shows you the decisive move, and you follow the races leading up to Le Mans. And then you get to the event itself. You've got John Hindoff doing some of the commentary, which always marks it out as a modern modern Le Mans film. It's a recurring theme, isn't it? It really is, and for exceedingly good reason. Um, It also has Tiff Nadell doing some commentary. And when this film came out, I actually went to a screening at the local View Cinema, because they did a cinematic showing, followed up with a Q&A by John Hindorf and uh, Simon Dolan and um, Charlotte Fantelli, where they sort of talked about it a bit more. Now, this was the first film that Charlotte had done, and she's director, producer, writer, and she talked in this Q&A about the money that she'd put into it. So she's licensed footage from the ACO. She's licensed, you know, Mark Webber flipping the Mercedes... And she kind of got as much as she could because she said the ACO aren't cheap if you want to license footage. She got Patrick Stewart to come in and do the voice session. And then in the edit, she found that they actually needed more narration, but they couldn't get Patrick Stewart again. So Tiff Nadell comes in and does some of the narration. John Hindoff has a mixture of real race commentary and that kind of slightly phony commentary. Yeah, he d- used to do that on like the one-hour replays of wet races uh, that I always found 
just it's the uncanny valley of Hindhoff enthusiasm for something he already knows is coming and you can tell if you watch a lot of endurance racing which we both do mm. you can tell when someone's faking it versus reacting to a real <laughs> event and so yeah I can see what you mean by the kind of it's the same thing you get in the in the fake commentary they lay on the top of the races in Rush mm. which I think is a a current Formula One journalist or TV person kind of playing Basil Exposition over the top. <laughs> and it started to rain here at Fiji. They'll be in for wet tyres in a minute. Yes, exactly that. That's probably a verbatim quote. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so as it follows the team through the season, they've got their own footage. They've got footage from the ACO. They've got footage from the FIA, depending on what the series was. And... Like I say, it's a very good documentary. There are some bits of it that I think the inexperience of the people involved shows through. Um, they don't really talk about the cars in too much detail. The film is no worse off for it. They do have some cutaway-type footage that they've recorded, apparently, looking at the credits. I think it was filmed at Blyton Park, which is about, about as far as you can get from Le Mans. So when they're cutting together the footage of Simon Dolan's big crash at Le Mans, at um, Silverstone, and it's basically as he comes out of maggots, he gets pushed onto the grass, comes across the track, smashes into the concrete barrier halfway down the hangar straight, and they're kind of cutting in this B-roll footage that they've staged, recorded at really slow speed, which is a bit weird. The other thing as well is that the pacing of it is slightly odd in that... There is so much in the build-up to the race that by the time they're actually talking about the race itself, it kind of falls into this musical montage of the climax of the film. Now, I think we are possibly a bit spoilt these days because we are now so used to and expect the drive-to-survive type um coverage so a camera on every corner every radio transmission recorded every single angle from everywhere in high quality available to the production crew and this kind of misses because it doesn't have that focus on the race it's kind of it's almost like the whole film kind of goes we've made it to Lamar. ah right sun goes down sun goes up some people go out we cross the line hurrah it actually is more tense in the build-up because that year was, uh, I think, Loic Dumas had a big crash in the Audi and Marc Genet, who was supposed to race for Jota, was the reserve driver for Audi, which is why he was racing in like Jota overalls with an Audi helmet and Audi gloves. You know, Audi come over and say, uh, we want our man back. And um, yeah, he has to go off to... Audi and they have to scramble around for a driver literally the day before the race and so the team find in their big roller decks of numbers Oliver Turvey who flies in I think the morning of either qualifying or the race to jump straight in the car having not driven it before in anger and, and off they go that's kind of the most tense bit of the film so I think it's a bit of a damp squib in the end I think it's a very good advert for Jota I think it is a good documentary, but it's not a great documentary. I think it's a good watch, but the thing that struck me watching Truth in 24 as well, and I won't go into the detail of that, but 
it felt like Truth in 24 had a lot more meat to it. That this didn't quite focus on the right things. It didn't really excel in the ways it could. It felt slightly lopsided. And I think I would have liked less of the earlier races, more of the Le Mans experience. Um, but I know that budgets were very tight by that point and they just were, I think, in the throes of kind of just get it done, just get it out. Um, I think as a debut for a producer, for a director, I think it, it's a very good effort. I think anybody who watches it in the run-up to Le Mans would enjoy it. Would I watch it repeatedly the way that we would, say, other Le Mans documentaries? No, but it's the sort of thing that you could pull out on a Sunday afternoon, having had a big lunch, sit on the sofa, watch it and go, ah. And actually, one thing that I do love is watching so many open-top cars. I really miss the open-top cars at Le Mans. Oh, that's interesting. I don't miss them at all. I think they're very, very odd. And that's something that I find strange in Truth in 24 is this is uh, still the era of open-top LMP prototypes. Mm. It sounds like I'm damning it with faint praise, but Journey to Le Mans is a good documentary. If you haven't seen it and you you like Le Mans, if you're curious about endurance racing, it's a great introduction. Would you watch it repeatedly? Probably not. But it's a good, solid documentary. However, in comparison to that, Marty, talk to us about The Truth in 24. Truth in 24 is the godfather of all endurance racing documentaries, as far as I'm concerned. It's probably the most effective motor racing documentary I have ever seen. Yeah, I found it on US iTunes not too long after it was released, and could not I thought it was like a five minute promo and couldn't believe that this was a feature length movie and it was kind of my gateway into understanding what Le Mans is all about because I grew up with Formula One I did not grow up going to Le Mans my father wasn't especially a petrol head but my parents did watch Formula One on a Sunday afternoon and that's my intro to motor racing so for me motor racing was um, single seaters open wheel racing and I had very little idea about Le Mans other than it was a thing that happened in June and it went on for 24 hours and that's about the some level of my knowledge even reading autosport magazine i'd kind of read all the f1 stuff and then skip over the bit where they said audi won again um because (laughs) for a long time that is what happened so truth in 24 was made in 2008 2008 was the 10th year of audi's le mans racing program and they had become one of the most successful manufacturers of all time so to mark their 10th year and the last year of the r10 tdi diesel LMP car, they teamed up with NFL Films to create a documentary called Truth in 24. Do you know who NFL Films are? They are a company that make films about the NFL. So the NFL had a an idea a long, 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 long time ago that TV quality is always improving, but it's not always brilliant, and they have lots and lots of TV footage. But what they did was formed a film unit and they would get Panavision cameras to American football games and each team would have so many during the year and they'd go to the Super Bowl just so that when you have the highlights package of Super Bowl 22 
no matter how bad the NTSC standard definition TV footage was, there was this glorious 35mm pin-sharp slow-motion footage of great big men hitting each other. And their whole premise was to make the NFL look as good as possible. Now, the NFL season runs from, I think, about October to February. So they're at a bit of a loose end over the summer. <laughs> well, clearly, Audi then thought, hey, we, we need somebody to come and film this documentary we want to do. And I think it's a fascinating choice that they chose to use a documentary team who have absolutely no motorsport background. Because what it means then is that they are coming in as outsiders and they look at it from the point of view of the average person on the street who isn't a motorsport nerd like us. And that gives you a wonderfully transparent, open, welcoming documentary that you can show to anybody. I keep meaning to show this to my dad to kind of explain why it is I can be so nerdy about motorsport it's a it's a wonderful because it explains it gives you the drama it gives you the human side it gives you the struggles it gives you the competitive aspect it's all wrapped up and it's beautifully told and that i think is the work of a film crew rather than a documentary crew and it's the work of people who have come in from the outside have spent time observing both the audi team and the race itself and have gone how can we tell a story that is going to be accessible to other people like ourselves so when audi debuted their r10 tdi it was the first diesel racing car for le mans i think uh they basically found a corner of the rule book that encouraged alternative fuels and they made a five and a half litre turbo v12 diesel uh two i think some controversy with fans who like lots of noise and petrol and the diesel had neither of those things uh, but they only did this for a single season before Peugeot or Peugeot as they referred to in the documentary <laughs> by the American commentary team uh, decided to do their own diesel engine and Audi had been running with a, a, an open top car as Chris talked about earlier on and Peugeot go with a far more modern looking closed top car mm. and in 2008, the Peugeot is much faster than the Audi. A second and a half a lap faster on normal circuits like Monza and Silverstone and three seconds per lap faster than the Audis at Le Mans. Yeah, I mean, it's it's properly quick. And a lot, I imagine a large portion of that is down to the increased efficiency of the aerodynamics of having a closed cockpit mm. because you haven't got that annoying sort of effectively brick wall in front of the car where the driver <laughs> sits and the, you know, the rear bulkhead is. So the storyline is set thus. You've got Audi have dominated the race for the last eight of ten years. They've won it. And in this year, not only they not as quick they are proper underdogs the Persia is expected to sweep the board and they start off by showing some of the sort of earlier um, endurance races and stuff from the intercontinental Le Mans series in America where the Peugeot does indeed hammer the Audi into the dust and Audi have some uncharacteristic reliability problems you get to see one of the best depictions of teamwork 
on film that you are ever likely to see in this movie because they choose to focus not just on the car. It'd be very easy to just get sucked into the glamour and the amazing machinery of, of Le Mans. And they, because they have unfettered access to Audi to make this, they had time to go and interview lots of people and figure out who the personalities are in the team and really present them for everyone to get to know because I would wager that even some motorsport nerds in 2008 might not known might not have known of names like Howden Haynes or Ralph Jutner or Ulrich Beretsky. But these are people who are presented to you on the screen and are given time to tell their story and explain what they do. And then the film kind of drops little bits of them in and out as the story of the Le Mans race progresses. And so you get to hear their input. You get to see why they are an essential part of the team. And it is all about teamwork. Early mm. on, there is a a race where one of the Audis crashes hard. And, and it, it, effectively, it's off the ground, it's flipped, but it's not smashed off the wheels. It's managed to land again. And the driver's able to drive it back to the pits, missing huge chunks of its bodywork. They get it into the pits, and in 15 minutes, they have a basically brand new car rolling back out again. And... That is down to the teamwork. The movie opens with Audi's pit crew practicing pit stops over and over and over again. They've got an average of like 10.8 seconds to change the driver <laughs> and the tyres, and it's just 10.3, 10.4, 10.5, 10.6, 10.5, 10.6, 10.9. It's just over and over again. It's that kind of relentless drilling that we've kind of come to take for granted in Formula One now. Mm. But in 2008, in endurance racing, this is a different level that they're operating at. And there's even shots of the other teams watching the Audi crew drill <laughs> in a kind of, oh, I wish we had the budget and the manpower and the effort <laughs> and, uh, to do that kind of thing. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a demonstration of what it takes to be the best. It's a demonstration of why the team is more important than the ind individual, but it's also a means of highlighting those individuals who make a particular contribution. And they get that nailed on every one of them. Now I'll go into some of the other ones in a, in a second, <laughs> but I just want to say that this it, it's such an insight because of the access mm. they had and because of the filmmakers who are doing it. Um, and it, I think it, it's also a testament to those filmmakers that you get that thing where something is set up in the film and then it's paid off later. So like you say, not only do you see them doing pit stop practice, but you see them kind of go, right, this time Ford, Ford, uh, you know, tire change, change the driver, and change the diffuser, and change the left corner. You get that sense of they're not just doing the, do, you know, the bare minimum. The, the bare minimum. Yeah, yeah what exactly. they're doing is going. What do we think might break in a race? Right, we'll practice changing that. You mm. know, change the rear wiring loom or something. I think is <laughs> one of them. But then, but then you get that thing where when it happens in the film, further down the line, it draws that line in your head between oh we saw them practicing and that's how they achieve it. And I think yeah. that depth of filmmaking is what is just exceptional about this. Yeah. And it, that takes money. No question. This 
cost a lot of money and Audi had the deep pockets to finance it. And that's the difference between something like this and something like A Journey to Le Mans or A Gentleman Driver is this has clearly had the time and the budget lavished on it to be able to create those storylines. And it's a a huge tribute to the director, Keith Cosrow, and he had a co-director, Bennett Vizzeltier. Sorry, I'm probably butchering your name. (laughs) Taking on the knowledge... Um, with very little object, uh, very little knowledge of, of racing. But they're both award-winning documentary filmmakers and they just found the stories to tell. When we when we talk about spending money as well, there's one aspect that you haven't yet talked about, which probably was not cheap, but is iconic. That's very true. So there are two versions of this, actually. Um, the version I got from the US iTunes store is narrated by none other than Jason Statham. And the movie opens with the now iconic line, it always rains at Le Mans. Apparently, I saw a tweet from uh, Alex Brundle, who is a professional uh, endurance racer, who says that he narrates his Le Mans weekend to himself in the voice of Jason Statham, which is a fantastic thing because of this documentary. I love Alex Brundle just a little bit more now. At this time, I think The Transporter 2 had probably been made and released, and that was... Um, I think the first time that Audi had got Jason Statham in one of their cars, and so he had the Audi link. Bringing him on board gives this a real, like you say with Patrick Stewart, it gives it a gravitas, but quite literally a gravelly gravitas. <laughs> Statham is genuine in this, and he he narrates the movie in a way that I want all subsequent motor racing <laughs> movies to be narrated. It's a really well-written script, and it's scripted by the director's. So it's not just somebody else. They know what they want him to say. They know the bits they want him to explain to the casual viewer. They know when to have some voiceover and when not, when to use the voices. John Hindhoff from Radio Le Mans, he's in this, but he's used sparingly to provide mm. the the colour commentary from the actual race, but also some talking heads footage. But unlike the gentleman driver, they don't lean on him to be Basil Exposition. They just allow his huge wealth of knowledge to to expose what Nimon is about, why the race is so special, and and bring out a little bit more of the colour of the race without having to overuse him mm. and make it feel like it's the John Hindhoff show. And they 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 pitched it perfectly first time out. Mm. Sorry, before you go on, what was the other version? There's a, there's a version out there, I think you can probably find it on YouTube, which does not have the Statham narration on it. It's the same Ooh. script, I believe, but without the Statham narration. It's somebody else. I don't know who it is. I remember finding it once when I didn't have my copy on me and thinking, oh, no, this is wrong. I can't watch this. This is really wrong. <laughs> this is going to be like watching Back to the Future with that other guy, Eric Stoltz, Eric in Stoltz. instead of, yeah. Oh, was it like, can you imagine like Hugh Grant doing Jason Statham's commentary? Ugh, I don't know. But it, like I say, it's out there. You can find it, but you need to see the original. So... Obviously, the film jumps back and forth between the preparations to Le Mans and the significant moments in earlier races and from seasons past. And then, of course, it culminates with the race at Le Mans. But they get into it far earlier than Journey to Le Mans do. It's kind of you're starting the race at about the... the just under halfway through the documentary. So you've you've set the scene. You've been introduced to the three cars and the drivers who are driving them. Car number one has got the old guys, and they are really old. So Frank Beeler, sorry, guys. Frank Beeler, Marco <laughs> Werner, and Emanuele Piro are all in their 40s. Mm. You know, 45, 46 in some cases, which is 
for endurance racers, that's pretty old. For racing drivers in general at the top level, that's pretty old. Car number two is the, I don't know how to call it, like the... Legends. The 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 top guns, if you were. They've got Alan McNish, Dindo Capello, and Mr. Le Mans, Tom Christensen, who at the time of recording the movie had won a record seven times in nine attempts at Le Mans, which is pretty damn special. And then car number three has the youngsters, Lucas Lur, Mike Rockefeller, and Alexandra Prema. And you get to meet all of these drivers, some more than others, but you get why the old guys are still racing, why they want to do it one more time. They work so well together. More importantly, you get footage, uh, you get an interview from the Audi um, team director saying, yes, they're a little old now. They're closer to the end of their career in the start, but it's working so well and they've won the last two of three races. So why would we stop? And that's a fascinating thing to say. Yeah, they're working really well together and they're clearly very effective. And look, they won it last year. So why would we boot them out now? Mm. And you can see why the drivers love it. Because the documentary focuses in on the number two car with Mr. Le Mans, Tom Christensen, Alan McNish and Dino Capello, they kind of leave out car number three with the young guys in it. There is a storyline about Mike Rockefeller binning the car at Tetra Rouge the previous year and then this year being kind of a redemption for them in that he dropped the car in a really important moment and Audi kept him on. But as the documentary goes on, it focuses more and more on the number two car and the storyline of that car, which is the quickest of the three, against these Peugeots. One of which is driven by... Your friend of mine, Jacques Villeneuve. Yes. So Jacques Villeneuve at this time had the chance to do the Triple Crown, which Fernando Alonso has recently been trying to do and failing. The only driver to have done it so far is Graham Hill. Mm -hmm. But at this point, Jacques Villeneuve was in the fastest car, the Peugeot HDI 908 FAP, (laughs) 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 which I can't stop giggling about. But yes, he had a chance to do the triple, the Indy 500, the Monaco Grand Prix stroke Formula One World Championship and the Le Mans 24 Hours. And honestly, he doesn't cover himself in glory here. In his interview segments, he comes across as a little bit arrogant when he's talking to other far more experienced drivers like Alex Wurtz and the like. He is, no, I don't do that. I don't pass into that corner and I won't pass Mm. into that corner. Whereas the others are just like... Bugger off, you baggy trousered git. (laughs) Well, that might have been me saying that. I don't know. It's probably quite telling that he only shows up at this race. I don't believe he contested Le Mans before or since. But he's there and the Peugeot is three seconds a lap faster. There's a fantastic piece of show, don't tell storyline, where, yes, they show... they the drivers talking about how the Peugeot is three seconds faster and then they show it in brilliant fashion. They use a locked-off camera down the pit straight at Le Mans and they show the gap between the leading Peugeots and the chasing Audi after one lap, after two laps, after three laps, after four laps. And it is just a locked-off shot that shows three Peugeots whizzing past and then a pause and then an Audi. And the next one is three Peugeots and then an Audi. And then by lap four, it's a 10-second gap, and that 10 seconds is painful, and they stick with it because it shows you just how much quicker those Peugeots are than the Audi team. 
And then the commentary obviously drops in and says they're going to have to find somewhere for it to, to pick up that time. And then they kind of dig into the difference that Audi can make. They're quadruple stinting all their drivers. They're, they've got ammunition there straight out going balls out in traffic. One of the other Audi drivers says, I saw some of the things he was doing in traffic and I thought, if I don't do, if I do that kind of thing, I'm going to drop it. There's a <laughs> wonderful shot of him basically aiming for where he knows there will be a gap, but when you look at him aiming his car, it's full of a Ferrari. And somehow he slides into a gap coming out of the Porsche curves that wasn't there like two frames ago. And that's what they mean. You know, they, they, they're wringing the neck of that Audi to try and keep up with a much faster foe. And the crescendo of the movie builds as the weather comes in and it rains in the night and all of a sudden the tables are turned and Jacques Villeneuve at the helm of the Peugeot is suddenly being challenged by Mr Le Mans in an Audi in the night where the Audi has a clear advantage and you get him hunting down for the lead. And it's, like I say, the race builds to a crescendo there. they have I mean, they were very fortunate. This could have been them filming a one, two, three processional domination race. But it turns out that they chose one of the very great modern Le Mans races. Mm. A, an underdog story is always a story we all love. And they just nail the execution of it. They cut to race engineer Howden Haynes, who isn't even introduced until halfway through the movie. You hear a little bit from him earlier on, you know, talking to the drivers, you see him holding the stopwatch that's time in the pit stops, but you don't learn who he is until halfway through the film where they explain what his role is. And he has so much of the film's heart in it, in his describing when the drivers are complaining, oh, you know, the Peugeot's got a shitload more downforce at top speed, and you hear him go, yep, get used to it. <laughs> he's so down to earth and he's so focused on the job in hand. He's not going to spend any time thinking about the opposition's advantages. He's busy figuring out how to maximise their strengths in mm. order that they can win the race. And it's a fascinating insight into what it takes to be a top-level race engineer, what your job has to be, how you talk to your drivers on the radio. My favourite moment, apart from the Statham introduction, is Howden Haynes' discussion with Tom Christensen in a part late on in the race where the weather forecast says it's going to rain and it's dry out on the circuit. And you have this wonderful radio exchange where Howden Haynes gets on and says, it's going to rain soon, be careful. Driver comes back, it's bone dry out here, what are you talking about? It's going to rain and I need you to be careful. I need you to pit for intermediates. But it's bone dry. Everywhere is bone dry except where you are. And then it cuts to the classic, Tom, it's pissing it down here. <laughs> we should add, this 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 guy is British and delivers it as only a Brit could. <laughs> I could go on and on and on and on. And I don't want to just, because lots of you have seen this documentary already, and I don't want to just read out the entire script <laughs> to you, although I could. The joy of this is it tells an engaging story with interesting people that anyone can watch. You can watch this with your wife, your husband, your girlfriend, boyfriend, partner, whoever, if, especially if they're not into motor racing, because it gives them a window into why we like mm. motor racing, why we find it so fascinating. And you can't get that from many other documentaries. I must admit, I don't think this has been bettered. I think only the current Drive to Survive TV series with Netflix 
have got close to delivering the same kind of access and therefore storylines um, for motor racing, at least. So I was thinking about this because, as I mentioned in the Journey to Le Mans discussion, that Drive to Survive has become that high watermark. That's become what we've used, what we are used to, and it kind of marks a kind of a previous and, and a post kind of documentary style. Watching Truth in 24 again, I think this actually stands up because it almost has a lot of the things that went into Drive to Survive. And actually, it's a better racing documentary than Drive to Survive. Because if you watch Drive to Survive, a lot of it is what happens off the circuit. It's the, you know, the personalities, it's behind the scenes. And Formula One, particularly in the current situation, has been doing a lot of retelling of races from the driver radio point of view. So it's a three-minute, five-minute review of a race with drivers talking to engineers and having these sorts of discussions. That we don't get to hear, we should add. I mean, yes, when you're watching Formula One live, you get team radio, but Mm. there's no chance for the race directors to craft a story. And often Mm. they won't get the most interesting bits of team radio. That tends to leak out afterwards, or if it's a particularly good piece of team radio, it'll be on Twitter (laughs) very quickly. I'm thinking Mm. very much of Carlos Sainz's smooth operator, (laughs) where he just sings smoother (laughs) operator down down the line to his engineer, or, you know, Lando Norris and his engineer, Jarv. Um, ribbing one another the the team radio in this is is full of gems too not just that exchange but you're right i i remember thinking when i rewatched this before the show that without this drive to survive wouldn't be the way it is because mm. i think this is the template for how a modern motor racing documentary should be told and it's worth noting that audi followed this up with another documentary in i want to say 2011 Something like that. Either 2010, 2011, called Truth in 24 2, Every Second Counts. And I'm, I can't remember if it was in a, the same NFL films team, but even they can't match the heights of this. They had a similarly exciting race with incidents aplenty. They had some of the same team members, some new members, yet they couldn't quite get the same... Magic. Yeah, lightning doesn't strike twice. And I think in this instance, they were trying too hard to look for the things that they found organically here. Mm. Truth in 24-2, don't get me wrong, is still an extremely good motor racing documentary. It's just not as good as the first one in the way that many sequels aren't. So Mm. if you've never seen Truth in 24, you have such a treat waiting for you. (laughs) Of all the films we have reviewed on this podcast, I would say you watch this first of all of them. And I'm including McQueen's Le Mans in that, and I'm including Baby Driver and Ronin and all the others. Go and watch this because it will make you want to go to Le Mans. If it doesn't make you want to be a racing driver, which it probably does for Chris, but this will make <laughs> you want to go to Le Mans. Unfortunately, Le Mans in June hasn't happened this year. We hope that it happens in September. But Truth in 24 is essential viewing. Definitely. And. As we move on to our YouTube picks, I am going to cheat and have another Le Mans-based documentary for my YouTube pick. This, however, is a little bit different. It is the Ford GT story from the year that they developed the Ford GT, the new one, took it racing in America with Chip Ganassi and took it to Le Mans. 
and it's it's different in a way because it focuses a lot more on the car development and for some reason i'm not sure why i'm going through a bit of a ford gt reawakening shall we say I think I don't know if you ever get this, Marty, but I sometimes I'll, I'll look at a car that I've kind of forgot, forgotten about and kind of go, actually, you know, that looks really nice. And ooh. I'm having that with the Aston Martin DB9 right now. Yeah, well, I've I've been watching, um, you know, Jeremy Clarkson on Grand Tour driving one through New York and um, just various Jay Leno driving his on YouTube and stuff like that. And I found this, this documentary, but it talks about how the car was actually developed. You know, it wasn't um, a very big project. It was driven by no pun intended. They had Multimatic on board. They've got the Ganassi racing organization on board. Um, it's, It's quite honest about the problems that they have, about the failures, mechanical failures that they have. It's not Um, that honest though, is it Chris? Let's be honest. Well, if we're it, being really honest, did they cut away to show the big pile of sandbags after <laughs> Le Mans qualifying day? I knew you were going to say that. I do like the Ford GT, but Le Mans 2016, oh, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> um, if you like Ford, if you like the more techie side of things, if you like more about the gestation of the car and the road car and the race car and all these things together, because I think probably more than a lot of cars at the moment it really does fall into that almost homologation special type category. Really recommend uh, the Ford GT story. I really enjoyed this. I remember when it came out, and I'm pretty sure I watched it straight away. I really enjoyed the car development aspect of it, the mm. where you see what it takes to get a ground-up um, supercar, effectively, or racing car, for the, in this case, going from nothing to having a Le Mans winning car in very little time. Mm. That I found really fascinating. As a car, it's beautiful. It is. It is. Uh, and I've I've been very lucky to be up close and personal with one, and it's a work of art. It's astonishingly made, beautifully crafted, and quick as all hell. The only thing it lacks really is a truly great engine note. The racing cars I always found almost painful to listen to. For my YouTube channel, uh, again, I'm going to cheat and actually not pick a channel, but pick a playlist. If you follow Australian uh, V8 supercars, the great bits of uh, tin iron with no rear diff in them, one of the teams did a kind of drive to survive type series called Inside Line, a season with Airbus Motorsport. And it's it's a really charming enjoyable accessible series and i'm really really glad that it has made it to the uk because i think supercars has always had a slightly odd following it's always been that thing that got stuck on channels when there was kind of nothing else to watch um back in the great days of motors tv before that vanished but i think it comes with a lack of pretension as well as these big powerful brutish blunt cars and it's a really nice series like i say it's really accessible i think you could watch it like any other box set and it's something a little bit different it's cars that i didn't really know a lot of circuits i didn't really know a lot of people that i didn't really know and i really enjoyed it it's kind of given me a bit of a view into a different series um so yeah inside line v8 supercars That sounds really interesting. I quite want to watch that. I do like a bit of the V8 supercars. And I know some of the drivers sort of 
uh, because they tend to crop up in other series now, things like the Bathurst 12 Hours has a lot of V8 supercar drivers in there. Mm. And the recent um, sim racing and, and virtual racing has had a lot of V8 supercar drivers cropping up and doing very well indeed outside of their normal comfort zone. So I, I'm really interested to watch that. <laughs> I have gone back for some more E39 M5 content. It's been a while since we've bigged up the uh, best M5. So <laughs> this actually came from Matt Lang. Again, thank you very much for sending us these great things. The E39 Bavarian Ranch Hand tracking car. This is a car that is rigged up to have a gimbal-balanced camera on it and be a chase car for shooting car-to-car video and doing really, really impressive footage of sports cars going fast. If you want to do that, you need a powerful car. What seems to be the standard in Europe, at least now, is the what's called a Russian arm, which is a whacking great arm on an SUV like a Porsche Cayenne or something similar, uh, controlled by a fleet of people sat inside said SUV. This has taken a slightly different approach, still a four-seater. The, the video kind of talks about why the guy created the car, what he needed it for, and why he chose an M5, uh, why it had to be a four-seater rather than a two-seater, because you need a driver, you need a, a camera operator in there, you need a director in there. Um, it talks about the development process of, of buying the car and then fixing the things that needed fixing, how they came to settle on the particular stabilisation and gimbal for the car. And then they show some of the footage of stuff it's shot. And there's quite a few where I went, oh, it did that shot. So there's some <laughs> really great Corvette car-to-car um, -car stuff. There's the new Zinger, the 3D-printed car that was announced in Geneva, Um 21, the Singer 21C, is that right? Yes. All of the car-to-car -car for that was shot from the Bavarian Ranch Handy 39 M5, and they show <laughs> the you know the, the behind-the-scenes of making of, of shooting that car, including them going through, in a single shot with no cuts, the corkscrew at Laguna Seca with this and having a stable, usable, sharp shot, which goes to show the workmanship and the, the, the effort in, in putting together this this chase car and it just made me hanker after an E39 M5 again and <laughs> we in in a time where I know of at least two UK based drivers and filmmakers using Nissan GTRs that have been tuned to the nuts by Litchfield and Matt Raps on them and huge um scaffolding rigs scaffolding rigs on there this felt kind of pleasingly lo-fi and more budget conscious, if you will, because I think even the cheapest GTR is 30 grand these days and then probably lob another 20 grand at Litchfield to make it quick and, <laughs> and sorted. And and this, this, I feel, was probably done on a bit more of a budget, but works just as well. So if you're interested in seeing behind the scenes of some some really cool car-to-car uh, -car footage and hearing an interesting story well told about how someone came to create one out of an E39 M5, then please do check this out. And for my channel, I'm going with an actual channel because I'm not a big cheat like Chris. I'm going with... <laughs> uh, uh, this is a big channel, okay? Sky Sports F1, who have been cranking out some really great stuff in the absence of any actual Formula One. They've been putting together some really interesting stuff, including rerunning 
old classic races with commentary from drivers who took part. And I've really enjoyed watching these. Um, the, the latest of which is available on YouTube. It's Jensen Button commentating on the Canadian Grand Prix in 2011, which he won from last on the grid at one point. They did a, a previous one with him commentating with Anthony Davidson as well and David Croft on his first victory in 2006 in Hungary. And that was really entertaining as well, hearing his side of the race and how he thought the race was going to pan out. And the 2011 race is more of the same. Button is a very media savvy and engaging bloke at the best of times and it's really interesting hearing his take on a story he's probably told a million times at this point (laughs) but he probably hasn't gone back and watched the whole race not the whole race there was like four hours of nothing happening when (laughs) when it got red flagged but you know going back and watching most of the race live as it happened but and from the other side of the table as a commentator is really fascinating. They've also done something I think you highlighted on your Twitter feed today. Ted Kravitz reading through the new rules and explaining how post-lockdown social distancing F1 is going to happen. Um, there's loads of other great little bits and bobs on the Sky F1 channel that are worth looking into, seeking out, because mm. they're they're trying some new things in a new new situation and they are trying to put themselves i think a little outside of their comfort zone for these little film clips that they're making and they've taken a novel approach for how to do content when there isn't any racing on and i think it's paid off so please do check, check them out and if like me you can remember watching that 2011 race live <laughs> then uh, you know watching the edited highlights is always a joy because you don't have 4 hours of sitting on the sofa wondering if they're going to get started again <laughs> And that brings us to the end of our Le Mans special. Uh, We hope you've enjoyed it. Not been 24 hours long. There hasn't been any rain, even though it does always rain at Le Mans. (laughs) Disappointingly, actually, you know that virtual Le Mans we were talking about? That was synced to the real Le Mans weather. And so because the weather was so good in Le Mans, they didn't have any virtual rain, which I think might have spiced things up a bit. But anyway, if you've enjoyed the show, please do tell your friends. Um, If you have any thoughts on what we've been saying and reviewing, if you liked the Le Grand Rendezvous, then please do tell us why, because none of us can figure it out. (laughs) Take care. And I think we're both off now to go and get some intermediates because it's pissing it down. (laughs) Until next time, everyone.